The Word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the Word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our Saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's Word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to bromleytownchurch.com. Okay, folks, good morning to you. It's good to see you in the house of God, as we've said. Do you notice when we talk about evangelism, mentioning no names, some people get excited. And other people think like, oh my goodness. You may not consider yourself to be evangelist in any shape or form. You might consider it to be a very difficult thing. But you know what? Jesus came and met with you because he loves you and because he wants you to be part of his kingdom that in who you are and in the way you are, you can also express Jesus to other people. So you might be the noisiest person here. You might be the quietest person here. You might have an outgoing personality. You might have a more introverted personality. But who you are is important to God, and who you are is who you are. And that is what matters when it comes to sharing the gospel. You have infinite value, and who you are can be shared with others. I love the way that Yomi said about you do not have to know it all. Often, the less you know, the better. But all you need to know is this. Jesus makes a difference. Jesus makes a difference. He changes lives. He turns situations around. He doesn't always do what we demand or expect of him. But he does do what are in his perfect plans and his organization of the whole universe. He does what is right. For he's the only one who knows the end from the beginning. Let me just say that again. He's the only one who knows the end from the beginning. Therefore, he is the one who knows the way that you need to take and he can direct you in that pathway. We've had this time of 24 hours prayer here. It's a great time, people coming and praying and we've been very blessed to be able to stand with those people in the church that are going through sicknesses and difficulties and we've been able to lift them up and God has been putting some beautiful prayers into that and we thank God for that time. But you know, it's not just about that. God speaks to us, and God challenges us. And one of the things I was thinking about when I was praying in here in the morning uh, yesterday was that sometimes, sometimes I get angry with God. Why don't you do what I want you to do? Why don't you fix this situation? And I found in my spirit there's a sense of, you know, sometimes we demand of God. And you know what? God does things his way in his time. And sometimes there's a clash there because our demands, they're not being met and we get frustrated and we get cross and annoyed. Why don't you do this? And you know how difficult this situation is. You know the sort of things that we go through and you know the type of expressions that come up within us because I'm not the only one. I know that. I'm not the only one that thinks like this. But when I come before him and I say, and you hear that voice saying, but why don't you do things my way? Why wouldn't you wait and listen to see how I want to do it? 
You know, when you jump to the New Testament, you see the life of Jesus. What do you see about Jesus? Do you see a man who said, like, right, I'm here on earth. I've got a mission. I must get on with it. Now, I'm going to do this today. He only did the things that he saw his heavenly father doing. Do you see the difference in that? There were times, and there's one particular time in Scripture, where Jesus said, there's a lot that I could say. And I can imagine that situation. It's like, I want to... But I just rest in what my father wants to do. Right now, that's a little bit different from what I feel I might want to do. Now, I know that I'm interpreting that as a broadly. But I think there's a sense in which that was within Jesus. And yet, you see, he didn't do the things that just came to his mind. He didn't do the things that he just felt he wanted to do. He said, Father, what is it that you want me to do? Allow me to accomplish your will and purpose here upon the earth. Folks, we need to come to a new place of surrender before him. To allow him to do his work in our lives. To allow him to do his work his way in our lives. And just to let that peace come upon us. That surrender to come upon us. That he will direct us in the pathway that is right for us. There are people here who are going through great challenges. But what I'm noticing more and more is when the going gets tough, and it does get tough, his grace is sufficient for us. And he is bringing his glory here. And I know full well that people, he's touching people's lives. I can see it because they start to radiate his glory. There starts to become a joy that comes up on the inside. And nobody can push that down because it's the life of God in us that overflows out of us. Those who know him, he will cause to flow from them rivers of living water that can flow out to other people. That's why we all have the ability to share our faith, because within you there is a river that brings joy to other people. May the rivers flow in this place. Father, in the name of Jesus, we proclaim your peace and your blessing over our lives. We thank you, Father, that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you, Lord, that when it comes to your storehouses, they are not run dry. They are not empty. But they are full of great resources for our lives. Lord, help us to surrender to you. Help us, O oh Lord, to become weak, that in you we may become strong. We don't like it that way, Lord, but we understand that that's the way you like to operate. Because it's not about us, but it is about you. So, Father, glorify your name in and through us. Let the praise of your glory fill not only this house, but fill our families' houses. To fill this church, to fill this town, to fill this borough with the glory of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. We're going to run through a little bit of Job this morning. Uh, if you're here for the first time, then we've just been looking at the book of Job. Um, and we're trying to unpack it. We're trying to understand it. We've seen several things about Job, and I guess the best thing I can say to you is, please go and read it, especially the first couple of chapters, because you get the picture there that Job was a righteous man. He was a good man. He was a rich man. He was a man that had been blessed by God. He was a man who did work for God. He prayed. He connected with God. He knew God as God. He had relationship with God. But in the heavenly courts, because in the book of Job, at the beginning, we don't only get a picture of Job and his family on the earth, we get a picture of heaven. 
and in the heavens, in the spiritual realm, it's like there's a courtroom and there's a, a gathering and God is seated on his throne and he's talking to the spirits, the angels. He's talking to Satan. Satan comes in and he says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He is a righteous man. Like God is like, wow, have you thought of this guy? And Satan just says, bah, the only reason that he loves you is because you keep blessing him. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but just to bring us up to the story. You take away his blessings, and then you'll see what's really inside of him. He'll curse you to your face. And so God allows Satan to take away a lot of the, uh, well, his family, his wealth, his home. He takes it away. And we see Job, a broken man. And then we go back to another scene. We're again in heaven, and God is again expressing to say, have you seen my servant Job? You've done all that to him, yet he's still not cursing me to my face because he loves me. But Satan says, ah, you know, all those things. That, but when you touch somebody's body, their health, then he'll curse you. And so God says, okay, I'll take away the boundary. You can touch his health, but you can't kill him. And we see that Job is struck down with a terrible sickness. There's boils all over his body. And we come to this point where he is literally sitting in the dust and in the ashes. And uh, miserable isn't really, but he's, he's weighed down. He's lost his family, all of his family. He's lost all of his wealth. And now he's lost his health. And that's the picture that we come to. And in the midst of that picture, as we break into it, Job has three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And these friends come to visit him. It says in Job 2, verse 12 and 13, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him, and they began to weep aloud. Now, we've got to picture this, because this is the scene. This is a friend of yours. You know them. You know they've been through tough circumstances, so you go to visit them. When you come to visit them, and you see the reality of the situation that they're actually in, that's what's happened here. And they're like, whoa! He's changed. What's happened to him? He used to be so well-dressed. He used to be holding himself up. Now he is a broken man, and he's sitting there with boils and sores all over him, and it says that his friends began to weep aloud. They tore their clothes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. They sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. Nobody said a word. And sometimes that's what it's like as a friend. You come and you think like, I don't know what to say. And so in this case, that's exactly what they did. They didn't know what to say, so nobody said a thing for a week. And that's where we come up to today. So we have these three friends that have arrived. They've been sitting there for a week, but now suddenly they start to speak. And in actual fact, in the book of Job itself, we're now looking today from chapter 3 through to chapter 28. So we're taking basically the whole of the book, and the whole of the book is taken up, or most of the whole of the book, is taken up with the dialogue between these friends and Job and how they are talking to him. And during this dialogue, various assumptions are made. And the assumptions that are made are this, and it'll come up on the screen for you. Because it's showing that there's a human action and there is God's justice, the way that God works in operation to that action. So let's say the human action is that people are behaving in a wise and a good fashion, just like Job was. 
So when people behave in a wise and a good fashion, then what happens to them? There is success and there is reward that happens for them. So you've been good, you get rewards. That's the type of thinking that's going on here. But on the other side, if you are evil, if you're stupid, if you're doing sinful things and that's the way that you're living, then God's justice would say that disaster and bad things are going to happen to you. And that's what this book is looking at and what it's trying to unpack. And these are the assumptions that are being made. So if you live wise, if you live a good life, everything's going to be fine. But if you're living a sinful life, then you better watch out. Disaster's coming your way. There's going to be punishment according to that. Now that's an assumption that is being made. And the whole focus of the debate between these friends, the focus of the debate of this book, if you like, are these three things. First of all, is God just? Is God guided by truth? Is he guided by reason? Is he fair in what he does? Does he act justly? That's a question that's being raised. And secondly, does God run the universe on this basis, this strict basis of justice, of fairness? Is that how he runs the universe or not? These are questions that are being asked. And thirdly there, we're also looking at how is Job's suffering to be explained? How do we explain this? So those are the three main questions. And as the conversation starts, then Job and his friends are talking about these things. For Job himself, this is his mindset, if you like. This is his position. His argument is, I'm innocent. Look, I, basically, I've done nothing wrong. Basically, I've sought to live a righteous life. I've helped people out. I've shared my wealth. When my children have had parties, I make sure I offer sacrifices and I plead, as it were, the blood of Jesus over their lives afterwards in case any of them have sinned. I seek to live a righteous life. The argument that Job is making is, look, I am innocent. And therefore, the implication that is coming is that my suffering is not divine justice. It's unfair. My suffering is unfair. Now, in truth... We know from reading the first two chapters of this book, that is right. How do we know it? Because God himself said, have you considered my servant Job? Have you thought about him? He's pure. He's, he's a great guy. He's righteous in what he does. And so we know that actually those two things are very true. However, the conclusion that Job is coming to is that God can't run the world according to justice. And that therefore, because this everything seems to be so unfair. So that's the sort of conclusion that Job himself is coming to. Now, when it comes to his three friends, what about them? Their argument is that God is just. No, God is fair. God is fair, he is just, he is true, he is upright. And therefore, the implication to that statement is this. God runs the universe according to his justice. He does what is right. He always does what is right. But the conclusion that they come to is this. Because we believe those things, whether Job likes it or not, because of this disaster, he must have sinned. He must have done something. Oh, come on it. And as we go through the conversation, we begin to see that line being brought out. And you know what it's like? I've got to put you in this scene. You go to see a friend, and you've got a view about the way that they're living. And you're going to have a sit down and have a cup of coffee with them. 
you know, not to put them right, but to tell them where they're wrong. It's not a difference. You don't want to argue too much. In fact, it's not about argument, but you're going to present your case to help them come and see things your way. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Of course, we've all been in situations. It's not always as, as defined as that, but often in our conversations, we sit down, well, let me tell you how to sort this out. And what you're doing is you're saying, the way that I see it, I'm going to tell you about that so that you get it in your mind. See, this is the way I see it. You're seeing it wrong. <laughs> I'm seeing it right. Now, if we get that, this is what's happening here. Because you've got two mindsets. You've got Job who's standing there saying like, what's all this about? This is unfair. I didn't do anything wrong. And his friend's saying like, <laughs> the way we see it, it doesn't matter what you're saying, you must have done something wrong. Because why else? Our God is completely fair. He only does things out of his fairness, out of his truthfulness. And therefore, you've got punishment because you must have sinned. So we start off with Eliphaz. Eliphaz is the first one who stands up and starts to challenge Job. Job chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Consider now, he says, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. So basically he's using this argument, what you sow is what you reap. Now, we would know that to be a true statement in Scripture, but he is using it, therefore, as his argument to say, uh, he's not coming directly to the point, as in, Job, you've sinned. He's just saying, like, have you ever seen a situation where those who sow evil don't reap evil? Have you ever seen it? So he's just putting it out there as far as Job is concerned. Job, he's saying, you reap what you sow. Bildad speaks next. In actual fact, I should say, it's not that they speak next, because actually in those uh, chapters from 3 to 28, you see a pattern that starts. Job starts off talking, and then his friend answers, the first friend, Eliphaz. And then Job answers him, and then the second friend comes in. And then Job answers him, and then the third friend comes in. Then Job answers back to that, and then the first friend comes in. And so that cycle of back and forth between the different people, the conversations, takes place. That cycle happens three times between those chapters. So I'm taking it, so we're just cutting pieces out so that we can make head or tail of it, as it were. But if you're reading it, you will see the flow back and forth and the conversations that take place. So Eliphaz has spoken and he's saying, Job, you reap what you sow. And obviously Job answers back a little bit to that. But Bildad then comes in and he says, Job 8 verses 3 and 4, does God pervert justice? It's a question, but he's saying, like, look, he doesn't. God does not pervert justice. Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Of course he doesn't. He does what is right. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. This is harsh. His children, they're all dead. So these are pretty strong words that are coming across. Do you think Job felt that? So what he's saying is, listen, they've sinned, and that's why they died. So it's quite harsh things to be said. Zophar, he comes uh, afterwards. Look, Job, he's saying like this, God is just so it's impossible for him to afflict you for nothing. There must be a cause 
This is the type of thing that's coming with his argument. So, for example, your children have sinned, and they've received the penalty of that. Now, look, if you put away the sin, he says, this is Zophar, Job 11, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. So, in other words, if you start living right, then things are going to turn out right for you. There needs to be a change around in the way that you are living. You must have sinned, confess your sin, put away your sin. It's your duty to get right with God, and it's God's duty, his prerogative, to answer you when he feels like answering you. This is the type of thing that he's saying. But really, the argument that they're laying down is, Job, whether you like it or not, you must be a wicked man because of the situations that are coming to you and for the way that you've been afflicted. But Job maintains his mindset, the position that he's coming from. And we see in Job 13, verse 15, he says this, God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I'm going to argue my case with him. He's saying, like, this is my experience. It feels like God is trying to kill me, but you know what? I have no other hope than him. There's a depth of relationship in this man that's holding on to God. And in chapter 13, verse 20, he says this, Oh God, grant me these two things, and then I will be able to face you. Remove your heavy hand from me, and don't terrify me with your awesome presence. Now summon me, and I will answer, or let me speak to you, and you reply. Tell me, what have I done wrong? Show me my rebellion and my sin. You see, Job is maintaining his position of innocence before God. And he's crying out to God, please, can you come and talk with me? Will you let me know what is going on? As I said, there's this cycle of the friends talking, Job answering, and we come back to a second cycle. And Eliphaz now speaks again. And he's saying to Job, why has your heart carried you away? Why do your eyes flash so that you vent your rage against God and pour out such words from your mouth? In one sense, he's saying, Job, what's the matter with you? But there's one thing I like about the book. Although Job is a righteous man, he is also a human being. And when we are really being pressed under, sometimes we say things and we do things that are not always the most righteous. And we do see that Job gets angry with God. Job gets frustrated. But I have sympathy for him because he is under difficult... Uh, circumstances, he is under a great pressure in his life. Bildad reinforces this argument. How long before you stop talking, he says to Job. Speak sense if you want us to answer. You're not talking any sense to me. He says, terrors surround the wicked and trouble them at every step. His friends will not let go of the fact that they believe that Job has sinned. Job answers them, Job 19, we read this. Job says, my breath is offensive to my wife. Now, some of you might find that early in the morning, but <laughs> there is toothpaste for that, okay? But for Job, poor bloke, my breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me 
All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Yes, that is where that phrase comes from. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. You see, my life used to be so different. I used to go and stand in the city gate. I used to be one of the elders of the town. I used to be dressed in my finery, but that wasn't just about my pride. I used to want to help people out. I wanted to serve them. People respected me. People knew me. People came to me. But now, people despise me. Those who are my intimate friends don't want to know me. My breath is even loathsome. My wife doesn't even want to be in my presence. And that's what he was experiencing. But Job 19, verse 25 and 6, it says this. Having just come out of that situation, making those statements, we read this. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. And I see this, and if you know Handel's Messiah, that particular piece... And I would have played it if we'd have had time here this morning. As as I was preparing this, I had the song, the music come into my head because I remember my father used to be playing Messiah often on a Sunday and I can hear it. I know that my Redeemer lives. And this man, the picture that I want you to get of this man who is under so much suffering, So much loss, so much pain. And it's not just the physical pain, there is an emotional pain of the loss of his family, the loss of his position, the loss of life. God knows what we're going through. He understands what we are facing. It doesn't mean to say that we don't rise up with words of frustration. Why is this happening to me? Won't you answer me? which is exactly what we see in Job. But at the same time, we see this man's heart has been changed because he says this, I know that my Redeemer lives. You know, when everything has been stripped away, if that was to happen to our lives, where every blessing, every benefit, every comfort, every relationship is stripped away, what would our hearts say at that point? And I find that challenging. How bitter would we become? You see, it's all about relationship with the Almighty. Because he is the first, he is the last. When it comes to us leaving this world, how many of us are taking our cars, our keys, our house keys, our money, our bank balance, our uh, jewellery, our finery? How much are we taking with us? Well, it's no use at all. And God knows it's no use because when we get to heaven, he will clothe us with his raiments. He will cover us with his love. He will protect us with his presence. But you see, we can take nothing with us. But what counts here upon the earth is our relationship with God. And we see that in this man. I know that my Redeemer lives. Can we say the same? Can we say that when we're up against it? Can we say it's not just, oh, I'm a Christian, so of course my Redeemer lives. Well, do you know him? Do you know him? Because it's when sometimes we come up against the struggles 
that we find out how much we do know him and how much the reality of knowing him actually comes into our lives. When it comes to the difficulties, we can turn to him and say, he is my strength and my shield. He is my strong tower, my place of refuge. I find refuge under the shadow of his wing. That's where we find our comfort and our strength. Now, I'm talking these words, and I don't mean them to sound glib or they flow off the tongue so easily, because when we are in trials, it's hard to get hold of those things. But who knows that more than anybody else? Our Father in heaven knows that. I want to encourage you. Sometimes it feels that he's not there. Sometimes we just literally, and I suggest you do this at home alone, not in the middle of the tube train, put your hand up as though you're putting your hand in the hand of your father and let him take hold of your hand. Sometimes we need to feel that he is here and that he will help us. That's why I say don't necessarily do it in the middle of the train because sometimes people will look at you as if you're a bit strange. But we can do those things when we're quiet. Having had a lot of conversation with his friends, Job says this, Job 26, verses 2 and 4. How you have helped the powerless, how you have saved the weak, how you have enlightened my stupidity, what wise advice have you offered, where have you gotten all these wise sayings, whose spirit speaks through you? I could summarize that by saying this, that's a fat lot of good you lot have been to me. You're not help. That's what he's saying. You're not helping me. And that's why you can see at the end of this, the mindsets, they haven't shifted. The mindsets are the same. Now, at this point, a fourth friend, someone who's younger and therefore had been kept silent because he wanted the elders to speak ahead of him because he felt those who are older than me, they must have more wisdom and understanding, so therefore I'll let them speak. But Elihu now comes to the point and he comes forward and he starts to speak to Job. His argument is that God is just. The implication of that is that God always rules with absolute justice. He rules the world with his justice. But his conclusion is this. Suffering might be a warning. It might be a warning to help us avoid future sin. It might be something that's coming to build our character now to help us for something that's in the future. Now, that's his argument. That's how he's come at it. So he's looking at a different angle. And he speaks to Job. Job 33, verse 8. But you have said in my hearing, I've heard these very words. I am pure and without sin. I'm clean and free from guilt. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He chastens my feet in shackles. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than man, is saying Elihu. Why do you complain to him that he answers none of man's words? For God does speak. Now one way, now another. Though man may not perceive it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn man from wrongdoing and keep him from pride. And he goes on in, verse, in chapter 34. So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil and from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays a man for what he has done, he brings upon him what his conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Verse th uh, chapter 36. God is mighty, 
but he does not despise men. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. Look, Job, he's saying, God is always just. He is always doing what is right and true. He will always do what is right. And through all of this, you can feel that cry, the cry to understand, why am I suffering in the way that I am? And as I've said already, we must reflect back, we actually know why he's suffering. This is the strange thing about this book. We've been given a glimpse of what happened in the spiritual place, and now it's happening on earth. We know there that God said to Satan, hey, have you considered how great this man is? And Satan is trying to entice Job to actually turn against God. But that hasn't happened. So we know what is going on, but Job doesn't understand that. His friends don't fully understand it. Job can't see the reason of why this is happening to him, but he can understand the pain that he's going through. He can feel the pain. His friends can see the pain that he's going through, but they also can't really uncover the reason of why it's happening. Dan, you can come up. All his friends can do is point out that God is just, that God does run the universe according to justice, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we understand what is happening. Job gets grumpy, he gets exercised, he gets confused about God. I'm not saying that that is all the right way to behave, but I do understand why he behaves like that. He hates the not knowing, and yet within himself, he knows that his Redeemer still lives and that he is there to help us. How does that affect us? You know, I want to put this scripture up, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, because God speaks this over our lives, and he declares these words, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, what in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of situations getting against us, overwhelming us, in the midst of death, loss, suffering, in the midst of all of these things, we are able to declare what is true and to stand on what is true because our God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And this is only one of a number of scriptures that we can get hold of. There are things that we want to remember from this passage, which I will go through very quickly. And I want to point this out first of all. Suffering, if you are suffering in some way, it does not necessarily mean that you have sinned. That's what we're being taught from this passage. If you're suffering, it doesn't necessarily mean you've done something wrong, so therefore this has come upon you. Having said that, sometimes if we continue in sin, things can go wrong in our lives. Because sin does not help us. And we need to get away from sin. We need to confess our sin. We need to repent of our sin. We need to turn away from our sin. But just because you are suffering, it does not necessarily mean that you have sinned. And that's what we see in Job. We can see with Job, in the midst of his suffering, and in the midst of our suffering, this one thing that comes up quite clearly. We are not necessarily going to understand why this is happening. Now, that seems a strange thing for us to share, but that is the truth. 
And that's how it feels often. But you know what? We need to get to grips with that because we've got to stop letting the worry about why is this going to me? Why should this be? Why, 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 why? And to turn back to the fact of saying, listen, he has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. And in the midst of suffering, our task is to hold on to his promises, to seek for his presence, to trust in him that he actually cares for us and loves us, and to remember, just like Peter remembered when he was called out of the boat, you remember Peter in the boat, called out of the boat, can I walk on the water like you, Jesus? Jesus says, of course you can. Come out of the boat and walk on the water. And as he's walking towards Jesus, he's keeping his eyes on Jesus, and everything's going all right. But as soon as he takes his eyes off Jesus, whoa, wait a minute, there's wind here, there's storms here. And that's the point when he started to sink. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of the storms. Because it's as we keep our eyes on him that he helps to bring us through. But when our view, when our focus gets distracted, that's when often we find ourselves sinking and things can start to overwhelm us. Let's get our eyes back to Jesus and anchor ourselves in our faith in him so that he might be able to lift us up. Amen. Thank you, guys.